1: Welcome to the New Statesman's Hidden Histories podcast and our new series, The Great Forgetting, Women Writers Before Austen. Episode 1, Rewriting the Rise of the Novel. The 18th century was when much of the Britain we know today appeared. Coffee shops, mass-market newspapers, mass-produced clothes... It gave birth to a vibrant print culture of anonymous gossip, libelous pamphlets, lesbian pornography, highbrow epic poetry, and, of course, the literary form that came to be called the novel. In the 20th century, there was a simple story told about the rise of the novel. It went from the rough prose fictions of Daniel Defoe through the polite middle-class romances of Samuel Richardson and the precision-engineered plot of Henry Fielding's Tom Jones. The book that laid out that trajectory and influenced a generation of scholars after its publication in 1957 was Ian Watt's Rise of the Novel. But today the book is most remembered for this throwaway remark. The majority of 18th century novels were actually written by women, but this had long remained a purely quantitative assertion of dominance. It was Jane Austen who completed the work that Fanny Burney had begun and challenged masculine prerogative in a much more important matter. Her example suggests that the feminine sensibility was in some ways better equipped to reveal the intricacies of personal relationships, and was therefore at a real advantage in the realm of the novel. Who, oh boy, where do we start? Well, in this series of six podcasts, we'll be telling an alternative story about literature in the 18th century, one where women writers before Jane Austen get a look in, and not just as purveyors of small-scale romantic novels. This episode, I'm joined by Sophie Colombo and Liz Edwards, both academics, to retell the rise of the novel. Sophie, I'm going to start with you. Um, how soon did other scholars begin to take issue with Ian Watt? Well, I think the 1970s was really important here. You get groundbreaking
2: studies from the 70s, such as Jane Spencer's um, Women Novelists, Nancy Armstrong's Desire in Domestic Fiction. And these start to say the story hasn't even been half told yet. You know, the story of the rise of a um, occurs concurrently with the rise of the professional woman writer and they start to um, to say you know that this is not you know women are not fringe writers in this period women are absolutely central to the story of the novel as we know it and they start that Project of rediscovery and reclamation that we're here to talk about.
1: I love that snottiness of the purely quantitative (laughs) dogmas. Like, yeah, they wrote a lot of novels, but. mm, Purely quantitative. But just, you know, a lot of paper was used, but nothing, to no effect. It is a point that's
2: worth making, though, and, you know, it's, it's, I suppose, to Watt's credit that he makes it. Um, The majority of novels during this period were written by women. Some people are still surprised to discover that, but, you know, you're right that we need to get beyond that that quantitative. I think move on
1: I think it's really interesting because even now you know having studied all this stuff at university I still when I when you sort of think of that progression of novels that the idea of, of you know Defoe Richardson Fielding Liz is just still so it's just it's still such a neat story about what happened I can't think of a book from a woman by that period that that feels like it has that kind of canonical stamp on it in quite the same way what do we miss out though when we tell the story like that?
3: When we tell the story in the way that Ian Watt told the story, what we leave out is pretty much everything by a woman writer. And so, as we go through these these podcasts, we'll try and fill in the gaps. Uh, we miss out the very beginnings of the novel with Afra Ben and the inheritance of continental romance. We miss that out from very very end of the 17th century.
1: Okay, can I stop you there? Because this is, I think, since this is going to be one of those things, I bet academics probably have like. Proper actual bar fights about what, <laughs> what is is there any agreement about what the first novel is it's afrobenzerin
2: okay um uh-huh. <laughs> no there's 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 debate it depends it entirely depends how you define novel, you know, what you think the novel is. Um, but I think Orinaka has
1: a pretty good claim. What do you think?
2: Liz? Absolutely,
3: I think.
1: So is it a case of, of a distribution method? So you get, so Aphra Behn was writing, what, 1870s or so, or just after the restoration? Sixteen, sorry. Late 70s. 17th century. Yeah, so yeah. just after the restoration of Charles II. Yeah. So you, at that point, you have you have a printing press, you have a London in which people have moved to from the countryside, so there is a kind of you know, population of people who are slightly more free to do things than they would have been. You have, the theatres have reopened, so there are play texts around, so people are making a living from the stage. But it's, it, I guess the, my question about the novel is, when does that bit when a sort of thing of about 200 to 300 pages get, you know, that you can buy as a thing, when does that happen? And did that happen to Orinoco?
2: Well, my impression is that at the end of the 17th century, print culture is on, on the up. But the print explosion of the 18th century later hasn't really taken place yet. Um, it's, I think it's, my impression is it's Orinoco's form that really um, gives it its title and status as the first novel. I don't know how many pages it is. It's probably not more than 100.
3: No, I mean, it's short, but yeah. that's a clue to what's going on in this period, because it takes at least 50 years from the the later part of the 17th century until we get something that is in a much more stable form that we think of as as recognizably a novel today. Um, so we have a mixture, so 1710, seventeen twenties, shorter fiction, longer fiction, and women are really important in that flu that fluid period in those shorter forms, which are all part and parcel of the evolution of what we now think of as, as a regular novel.
1: So let's talk a little bit about Orinoco specifically, because I find this fascinating. So the novel is very much despite, this is this weird contradiction is despite the fact that, you know, these three great sort of giants and then later on in the so- century, so Tobias Smollett, um, you know, held up as being the kind of you know big weighty men of the novel. It's nonetheless seen as quite a feminine genre, certainly by people like Alexander Pope, who thinks you know the poetry is what proper serious serious business is. But *Orinoco* is is a story about a black man, isn't it? It's a story about an African man. I mean, yeah. Sophie, tell us a little bit more about, about it what is, it talks about. Yeah,
2: it's um it's the story of an African prince who is uh, tricked onto a slave ship and taken to the British colliery colony of Suriname, and there um, he meets the narrator, who some people have read to be a kind of um, bio, you know, semi-biographical form of afro Ben, who's a sort of member of the ruling British elite in the colony. Nonetheless, she makes friends with Orinoco. Um, Orinoco marries, he's going to have a child, he doesn't want his child to be born into slavery, so he leads a slave rebellion, for which, I'm sorry about the spoilers, he's horribly, horribly punished. Um so it's it's a cohesive narrative. It follows the you know the, the story of a protagonist. And it also engages a number of themes that I don't think could be dismissed even by the definitions of the sniffiest uh male 18th century critics as feminine. Um it does everything that we'd ask of a novel, really.
1: And um, is it I mean, we don't know that much about Afroben's life, do we, Liz? We know there's sort of vague talk about a Dutch connection about her being possibly a spy for Charles II, but what can we what can we nail down as having actually happened?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean the spy stuff is um, something that may have. We may be able to read into Orinoco because that's that maybe is where she she got the idea to set her novel, where she set it in Suriname. Um, What do we know for sure? Um, We know that she and she was possibly born in Shropshire, she ended up in London, she uh, was hugely prolific as a dramatist, Um, she was massively successful in that field, more so really than as a fiction writer. So, to her own peers, she was. I guess she was better known as a dramatist than she was known as a fiction writer in that period.
1: Do we have any idea how she came by such a, an exotic sounding name? Because it's Aphra spelt in the Greek word, you know, it's A-P-H-R-A. I sort of assume everybody at that point is called Mary. Pretty much everyone's <laughs> called Mary, right?
3: If you look at some of the early records of her life, the little bits that people think may link up to the figure we call Aphra Byrne, it's spelt free it not Kind of reminds mm. me of Geoffrey. I don't know, but Geoffrey Bingham.
1: Could be her brother, like the kind of the reverse <laughs> of Judith Shakespeare. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: Spelling spelling of names can be quite unstable then, anyway. But it seems it seems oddly appropriate to someone who's you know the information we have about her life is so fluid and is so difficult to recover. But what we know is that she wrote. She wrote in spades. What we also know is that she had a very clear sense of the unfairness. Um, of her situation as a woman writer. Um, She wrote at one point, I value fame as much as if I had been born a hero. This is in um, the context of a preface in which she is asking people not to define her as a woman, to define her as a writer.
1: But also she felt, I mean, this is something I'm sure we'll come back to again and again, is that there was a certain... I guess it's sort of unfeminine but also kind of unseemliness there's an uh, so is it Janet Todd's book it talks about the sign of Angelica mm. hanging out the sign of Angelica which is this idea but it's also given a kind of a connotation of, of, of being slightly brothel-like that there is something that is kind of selling your wares your intellectual wares is, is considered in the same way as selling your body
3: mm. and yet she goes ahead and does it anyway I mean these women are absolutely unstoppable um, it's It's incredible, actually, to think how much flack they get thrown at them from all quarters in this period. And they don't care. They stick two fingers up at it and they just go ahead and they do it anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of a, a nice lesson for us, maybe.
2: There's a real sense, I might be jumping the gun, but when you move on to writers later in the 18th century, there's a sense of terror that you're going to be sort of touched by um, the notion that you're unseemly, that you know you're you're um you're under an inappropriate kind of scrutiny, that as you say you are selling wares in a way that kind of calls you into question morally. And looking back on these earlier writers, I think Liz is right, you know, they just don't seem to care. They don't seem to operate under those restrictions that come in later.
1: That is somewhere that you see a kind of move towards what I would think of as the kind of slightly puritan nature of the Victorians. Towards the end of the century you get more kind of Hannah Moore writing these conduct books, don't you? And things mm-hmm. like that. And you get it all gets a bit Mm-hmm. but but that initial period the sort of from 1680 through to sort of 1820 does feel very i guess yeah very prolific and very mm. yeah promiscuous in mm. a lot of different ways talking of which let's move on to someone who certainly had she was not i can't imagine she sat down and procrastinated and spent well i was gonna say whatever the 18th century version of twitter <laughs> is she got a lot of writing done eliza haywood wrote what 50 novels at least yeah, Yeah, probably more. And the only one that I have to say that I can think of is Fantamima, Fantamina. Fantamina. Mm-hmm. Did she also write a, um, a, a Pamela parody? Did she write an anti-Pamela? Yes. Because I think that might be the only time... I, so that, this is one of the sort of strange things. So Samuel Richardson writes this incredible literary sensation, Pamela, in which... Uh, you know, a sort of homespun serving girl attracts the attention of Mr. B, her master, and it's all very much kind of, you know, he's always trying to lure her into bed with him and she's always going to go in lawks and not letting him get away with it. (laughs) And then I think, so Henry Fielding gets Shamala out of that, in which she knows exactly what she's doing. And then, but other female writers at the time also kind of wrote against that.
3: But yeah, but tell us a bit more about um, Eliza Haywood. Eliza Haywood is kind of like Aphra Behn in the sense that she comes out of these really cloudy this clouded background and we don't really know for sure you know, where is she from, who is she, where does she come from. Um, but part of the reason for that, for Ben, it might just be we've lost in the mists of time exactly who she was. Um, Hayward is different because Hayward deliberately set out to make sure we would never be able to track her down in this way. She destroyed all her records or she instructed her partner to. Um, so it's really difficult to say exactly who, Who is she? Who did she marry and when? When was she born? Because she made sure that we wouldn't be able to follow those tracks. You say her
1: partner, so I presume not a kind of... She wasn't, you know, husband and 2.4 children. She was (laughs) living a slightly more, you know, free and easy life than that.
3: Yeah, she was married early on, we think. She probably had two children maybe within marriage, maybe not. Uh, it's hard to tell. When she's satirised by Pope in the Dunciard as these two babes of love, are they her illegitimate children or are they her books? Nobody's quite sure. But later on, she certainly has a partner in the 1740s, 1750s, long-term partner called William Hatchett, who's a hack writer. And, and he, he does exactly what she wants him, what she wants him to do. And Burns it all, I guess.
1: I was going to say I've got. We, this is a spoiler, which so we'll come back to it in a later episode. But I went and looked up that bit of the Duncey ad. So this is Pope's <laughs> attack on on Grub Street about the whole idea about people doing writing that is not as serious as Pope, yeah, because I don't know why in my mind I've sort of turned Pope into sort of one of those men who writes long reads, but which is, <laughs> which is not really fair at all because he wrote, you know, he often wrote couplets, he wrote things that were quite short. Mm-hmm. But this is him of, uh, so he imagines that two publishers are having a literal pissing contest over Eliza Haywood. So they're seeing the circle next, Eliza placed two babes of love close clinging to her waist, and then the goddess then, who best can send on high the salient spout fast streaming to the sky. <laughs> I, 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 this is a terrible thing. I have a secret love for Alexander Pope because although he was clearly a raving misogynist, he did have, he wrote things that were very short, which as an undergraduate, I really appreciated. No small virtue in the 18th yeah, century. Exactly. Yeah, it was, it, when it was the choice between some, you know, someone like, I mean, this is a kind of, I mean, we'll, t- we'll come to this later, but the they're talking about the studying of these things at universities. It's quite hard with Haywood because in an undergraduate degree, how do you do justice to that kind of career?
3: I suppose there's this huge body of Hayward work and, and very little of it is, is known beyond a few kind of obvious, really quite well-taught, widely-taught titles now, um, including *Fantamina*, which is the story of a woman who falls in love with a particular man, but obviously she can't do anything about it because she's a single woman, so to pursue him is just impossible. The way she does it is by um, masquerade and disguise, so she invents a series of different persona for herself in which she can then um conceal her own identity but pursue him kind of endlessly he he um he loses interest very quickly in, in each character so that's why she has to keep reinventing herself in order to be able to pursue him um it all goes fine until she gets pregnant um, and that's when the whole thing unravels for her again it's
1: it, it's i mean this is what i find really fascinating is particularly when you look at it from this end of the t- you know the 19th century and victoria honour having happened it's quite ha- hard to remember how like liberal i guess some of these early fictions were mm. i mean i find you know one of the, my great discoveries in my english degree was reading the poetry of the earl of rochester and being like oh wow okay oh oh boy uh, this is pretty pretty racy stuff right here but um and of course ben writes a reply to the earl of rochester did she absolutely doesn't, doesn't she I think that's I okay I'm going to go and find that because <laughs> because one of my one of my favorite um poems is, uh, for the 18th century is the one that's attributed to Lady Mary Workley Montague that's a reply to the lady's dressing room so mm-hmm. Jonathan Swift writes that you know kind of her clothes stool stinking and the- mm. so he goes into his mistress's bedroom and obviously um finds her stockings and like the tweezers mm-hmm. that she gets the what is it the worms out of her yeah nose. worms so out like, of her nose squeezing her spots it's like the kind of clearest little yeah. paw strips basically of the 18th century and then what's the, what was what is the thus repeating an amorous fit so Celia 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 ships yep and I love her response because it's one of those, it's perfectly calibrated to be just as rude as his. Mm-hmm. So in her telling, um, you know, the, this Swift goes to visit a, a prostitute, he pays what, two pounds mm-hmm. to see this prostitute? And then can't get it up. He, he was it. He peeps in her, he peeps in her bubbies then her eyes, and kisses both, and tries and tries. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually storms out and asks for a refund. And she says she won't. So he says, "Well, right, well I'm going to write something that will just make the very Irish will not come," which is probably now a very unpc thing to say. But um, but yeah, and I'm glad you'll write your furnished paper when I shite. And I really love, <laughs> I really love that there were, and and she's a you know that. She's a better, if it is indeed, as it's attributed to Workley once and she's an aristocrat. She's still using pretty coarse language. What I'm interested with Haywood is how many other, is there a milieu around her? Were there have been other women doing, you know, we're so used to seeing these women as trailblazers, you know, Afro Ben totally out on her own. Actually, is that, is that a fair thing? Were there other people around Hayward doing the kind of things she did? Did she have a, a, a posse?
3: Yeah, I mean there were other women around about the same time doing similar kind of outrageous things. Um Della Riviera Manley would be the obvious comparison. Um both of these women also they're very political. They write um scandalous fictions which are basically thinly veiled political commentaries.
1: So Della Riviera Manley wrote What The New Atlantis, uh-huh. which I have to say I tried to read. And because <laughs> I don't know who any I mean you know, I yeah. know who Barbara Castlemaine is and I know that she was what she's the Charles II's mistress and then at one point he kept acknowledging her children, even though they were clearly no longer his. And then at some point, some guy had to clear off out of the window when the king came out. And, and that, that's fine. But it's really hard to read Delariviere Manly now, isn't it? Because you just don't know who anyone is and what no. it's referring to.
3: You need a key. And sometimes they would publish these kind of um, these scandal fictions, these political fictions. And then later on, they'd publish the key. So you mm-hmm. have to read it. You have to figure your way out through the text. And then only afterwards can you find out exactly who's who. And okay.
2: Well, the, it, yeah, sorry. Sorry. I was just going to say this kind of brings us on to a really interesting shift that happens with the novel over the course of the 18th century. Um, the earlier 18th century writers are often referring to specific personages within their fiction, which, you know, was great fun at the time for all concerned, but actually makes it really, really difficult and inaccessible for a lot of students these days. Um, the later novelists coming in, especially female novelists, there's this idea that it's nobody's story. The idea that for the first time, perhaps not for the first time but you know in a newly self-avowedly self-conscious way this is somebody i've made up evelina belinda etc are people i've made up and they are nobody and that's the point of them
1: so me so someone like eliza haywood she turns up in london presumably from her um from where from where she grew up you know she has to make a living now which is a really hard thing for a woman to do how do you get a novel published then
2: it's an excellent question.
1: <laughs> Presumably, you, you turn up to go, "Hey, Edmund Curl, or similar equivalent." You you have to just sort of walk in somewhere with a with a manuscript. I mean, well,
2: yeah, basically. For a start, you're not usually offered very much money. Um, I mean, the evidence we have is very, very patchy. For earlier 18th century novels, we start to get a bit more bookkeeping and a bit, you know, a few more receipts turning up for later in the century. But um certainly, you know, then one is not likely, as a general rule, to get paid very much for a novel if a publisher thinks that he can make a bit of money, much like now, if a publisher thinks he can make a bit of money from it, then he might take it on um, or she. There are women publishers also. But um, and do you
1: do any? Do you do any of the stuff that we now think of as being part of literary culture? I mean, I know there's like there's no. Newsnight, there's no no hay festival. But are there other things that a writer can make money out of aside from their writing?
2: Well, writing for the theatre is generally understood to be much more lucrative than writing a novel. Um, There's a whole kind of system of ritualised payment, as I understand it, that goes on around the theatre. So the third night is the night that the playwright takes the proceeds. Of course, it has to get to a third night, which depends on audience reaction. Um, One can and does experiment generically. These authors we've spoken about so far, they're not bound by a particular genre in a way that one might be encouraged in the literary marketplace today to do so, to specialise.
1: And presumably, this is possibly one of the reasons that's driving the, the the fruitiness, Liz, is that sex sells...
3: I guess so. I mean, yeah. Hayward takes advantage of the fact that this is a moment when you can try anything, Um, when you can set up a newspaper or a periodical. um, It may fly, it may not, doesn't matter because you could try another one. Both Manley and Hayward wrote um, political journalism through the 1720s, 30s, 40s, there are also suggestions that in round about the 1740s, Eliza Haywood appears to have made a hell of a lot of money, and nobody's quite sure why has she set herself up at this really smart address in London, what's going on exactly? It now seems as though new research shows that she's actually running a brothel as well, and she is top madam in this, <laughs> in this 1740s. Uh, but you
1: had to be kind of entrepreneur, wouldn't you? I mean, this is kind of partly what Pope is writing against: is the idea that you can't be sort of a, a tortured genius in a garret. You have to get it, you know, get in there, get stuck in. And now, Sophie, let's let's whiz on a kind of another twenty or thirty years, because um, I think the next significant milestone, perhaps in the and development of the female novel, mm-hmm. is Frances Burney. Now, this is clear this up for me first, because I had a, a sort of momentary twitch. When in what refers to her as Fanny Burney, <laughs> and during her life she was she was Madame D'Arblay for well, when she was married, wasn't she? Yeah. But she wasn't ever Fanny Burney, was she? To her, to herself. There's a long raging debate about what to. Oh, call I love her. academic arguments. <laughs> this, this is what I live for. Right? Okay, go And on. this is actually, so, you know, this is actually true
2: of a number of women writers um, for various reasons. But um, so
1: De La, De La Riviere Manley is got. Is that's not? That's some conjunction of her second name and other and her married name, right?
2: Well, the problem always is when a woman writer marries. If she publishes under her maiden name and then also her married name, what do we call her? How do we um, file her in a library? You know, these these questions don't have any easy answer. And sometimes it, you can tell quite a lot, a lot about people from how they answer these questions. Um, yeah. Frances Burney was known as Fanny Burney from, you know, the kind of late 19th, early 20th century, mainly. It was a critic called Austin Dobson who decided that she should be Fanny Burney.
1: Now, he just arbitrarily went...
2: (laughs) She was known as Fanny to her intimate family and friends... She never ever would have called herself Fanny to a reading public because it's a very private and diminutive nickname. Yeah. Um, on the one occasion in her diaries when she's asked, oh, What is your Christian name? she says, that My name is Frances, in a rather kind of stiff tone. Um,
1: but that's why feminist scholars have kind of reacted against this because it's not like we don't talk about uh, Johnny Swift or Harry Fielding. Sammy Johnson. You just don't get that. Sammy J. Sammy J. <laughs>
2: So, yeah, I mean, it's, I, would, I would choose to go with Frances Burney because I feel like it te- sort of takes her seriously as a novelist in the same way that we would have Henry Fielding or um, Samuel Richardson. Um, and then there's her married name, of course. Uh, later on in life, she is Madame D'Arblay because she marries a hot French émigré. Um, uh, but, you know, she writes two of her novels under Burney, she writes two under D'Arblay, and she doesn't actually publish under any name. She publishes anonymously the whole time, even when she knows that people know who she is. So
1: so let's talk a bit about more about that, because that's a recurrent theme of... So there are there are different things holding back different women. So for you know more working class women at this point largely illiterate, so aren't part of the kind of this, this flourishing of novel reading. Then you're moving up more slowly into the sort of lower middle class, in which case you know that's your your main concern is can you make enough money to eat? When you move up, she's she's the daughter of a pastor, isn't she, of a reverend? He's um he's a music
2: master, and um, she has divines in the family, so there's a strong religious presence there. But her father Charles Burney is a music master and a scholar of music, so he publishes a very influential history of music. He's not particularly well-born, as the 18th century would have seen it. Um, He really claws his way up through the ranks of society in a most impressive way, really. He's a great networker. Um, But as a result, reputation is incredibly important to him, because his career depends on patronage. Um, And he has this This brood of incredibly talented children, musicians, writers, um, artists, naval captains, you name it, in later life. Um, And Frances Burney is perhaps the most talented of them. Um, When she's a teenager, she publishes her first novel in secret. Um, She gets her brother to dress up and take it along to a bookseller and publish it because she's so terrified of offending or embarrassing her father. Dress up as what? Just as a man, you know, he's probably, he's probably he's probably just a teenage boy by then. I think he's younger than her. Yeah. So yeah, you know, you've got some fake moustache or whatever it yeah. is, um, and he goes along and says, "Hello, my name is Mister Smith, or whatever it is." And I, an author, has asked me to give you this novel, and she conducts the entire business through through her brother, and it's a secret between her, her brother, and her sister. Um, secret so gets sort of blown apart when Evelina becomes the success of the season the toast of polite
1: literary london is Evelyn right okay you're gonna to have time to with this because i get confused between. i mean, so she wrote evelina camilla cecilia and then castle wreck no, no the
2: wanderer the wanderer, wanderer last one, the wanderer just, or female difficulties
1: because she ran out of you know, I, don't know what she could have done, <laughs> I mean anyway but so i get confused between that and belinda which is maria edgeworth mm-hmm. is Everline the one with mr orville yes Lord Orville. Yes, because in my mind, obviously, I've now retconned him, so that is now a green duck in a nappy (laughs) who is, you know, being slightly holding back on it. But um, but yeah, but tell me a bit more about the plot of Evelina. Evelina is
2: subtitled um, "The History of a Young Lady's Entrance into the World," and that really, you know, it does what it says on the can. It's the story of this sweet country Miss Evelina who um is brought into London and has to come out, has to come out into the world and to learn how to navigate the world's pitfalls and traps and obstacles. And a lot of those, of course, um, concern finding the right man and making the right marriage. Um, and she she gets into some horrifically embarrassing situations. I mean, it's lots of reading Evelina is the equivalent of you know watching early episodes of The Office, and you can't quite keep your eyes on the screen because you're so you're cringing so much. Um, but she eventually navigates her way through, and she ends up with um, evading the rakes and the fortune hunters, um, and she ends up claiming uh, her father's name. Her father has never owned her in the past, and she settles down with Lord Orville.
1: Um, Who wishes he could fly. Who wishes he could (laughs) fly. But it's uh,
2: but it's know,
3: quite a comic
1: tone. That I mean, it's that's incredibly it, comic. Yeah. You know, and we, we can do recommendations about what people should read at mm. the end. But I think that is one that is a you know, if you if you like Jane Austen, but you're a bit freaked out mm. by going a bit earlier than that, I think that's quite a good introduction to it. But she has a bit of a I, I, in my mind, I sort of bracket her with Evelyn Waugh as someone who just gets progressively more miserable as their writing career gets on. They get darker; those novels, don't they? They
2: absolutely do. Um, this is kind of how her reputation has been. You know, how Bernie's career has been told as a story. She's sort of fixed in, or she was certainly fixed in sort of 19th century critical eye as this, you know, sparkling, dazzling young girl who wrote up Liner at a ridiculously young age, who had this dazzling success, who was Dr Johnson's favourite. And then she wrote Cecilia, and Cecilia was also actually extremely successful, and it's pretty... Um, it's got its darker moments, but it's it's also quite a lot of fun. Um, and then there's an awful lot of stuff happens to her after those those years of being sort of the toast of literary London. Um, she ends up being kind of chivied into becoming uh, a waiting maid to the Queen, of all things. Um, that's an incredibly miserable time in her life because she's a writer, she wants to write, but she's become this kind of glorified servant. Um, eventually, she basically has a nervous breakdown, gets excused from court... Um, marries and she writes her third novel Camilla and Camilla again it has its moments but it's there's a marked change there it's a lot more it's a lot darker it's about surveillance essentially it's about um, watching the person you love to see if they can measure up to the ideal that you have in mind so we're losing some of that kind of sparkle and fizz um, and then her final novel The Wanderer written in uh, much later life in her old age really is just unbelievably bizarre. It's a tale of the French Revolution, and it's about this nameless woman who has to navigate this, this mystery of her identity, who's wandering around trying to just kind of make a living and trying to kind of um, find people that can belong to her. And it has its moments, but it's also punctuated by, like there's a 200 page debate between two characters about the nature of the soul and damnation, which is, <laughs> which you know, is a bit of an ask. So I think we'd say today it really needed a stiff edit. And that that kind
1: of put the can on
2: her for a long time people said well she's gone and she never wrote anything again
1: but is that i mean is that a fair estimation that as you get towards the end of that century and you know when when is vindication the rights of women that's in the yeah, 1799 and then you have the french yeah, revolution and that time of kind of big political instability mm-hmm. and people feeling that the old order is breaking down you mm-hmm. do then start to see more novels from women which are explicitly preoccupied with feeling you know re- chafing against their i think you've um Something that perhaps the memoirs of Emma Courtney, yeah. you know, just uh, that are explicitly concerned with how boring and, you know, stultifying mm-hmm. life is, as a, as a, even as a, yeah. a middle class woman with yeah. quite big material advantages. Absolutely. From the 1790s, I would say that you
2: get this, um, this figure of a rebellious woman in novels. You know, you get Mary Hayes' The Memoirs of Emma Courtney, you get Belinda um, with uh, Lady Delacour and Harriet Freak.
1: Well, can we take a moment to pause <laughs> on, on Belinda because I love Belinda because Belinda is is bestrode by Harriet Freak, who mm. is basically a great big butch lesbian mm-hmm. who strides on. There are overtones of the, that there's something kind of monstrous about her that, that, and that, that's the way that lesbianism is presented in the novel. But that's a motif that runs through a lot of talking about women writers about you know the fear of female society about women kind of what women get together when there's too many of them in one place at the same time. Mm. But w- what do you like about um, Belinda? Well, I think I, I like a lot about Harriet Freak, as you do. She's uh,
2: she's sort of the whole energy. She and Lady Delacour, The Terrible Twosome, are really the sort of energy of the novel. She's got you... a touch
1: of the trunchbull about her, hasn't Absolutely. she? That's how I think of her, sort of, um... kind of coming like a shot putter.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that certainly after the 1790s, after Wollstonecraft, after this sort of vindication of the rights of women stuff, um, there's a lot of sort of anxiety and potentially desire as well being worked out in novels around this idea of the transgressive masculine woman who might represent radical politics, who might represent Frenchness, who might represent that kind of proto-feminism I suppose. Um, and Harriet Freak is just a really fantastic example of that. Um, Mariah Edgeworth's novel Belinda, which I think is 1800, 1802, something
3: like
1: that. Well, I um, suppose at that point we should say that this is, our, we are taking our 18th century long, aren't we? We here? are, yes. So there is this weird convention in academia where the 18th century begins in <laughs> 1660 and ends probably like with the accession of Victoria to the throne. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so getting into the sort
2: of long tail end of the of the 18th century. Um, Mariah Edgeworth writes this novel Belinda, which is heavily influenced by Frances Burney's writing. It's a society novel, story of a young lady's kind of you know coming out into London society and finding an appropriate partner. The trouble is, Belinda, the protagonist, is quite boring. But she encounters people along the way who are not, and two of those are Lady Delacour, her sort of um, patron, who's an, an unbelievably charming, vivacious often rash kind of woman who has a terrible secret, which is a kind of wound in her breast, eventually, it turns out, which stands for sort of her, her moral degeneration. Um, and Harriet Freak, who's this terrible influence on Lady Delacour, she is, as you say, this sort of striding, butch, dashing, masculine woman who um, who kidnaps Belinda, who plays um, incredibly cruel pranks on people. But, you know, there's that, there's that old... Um, Thing that everybody knows about how William Blake, the poet, said about John Milton when he was reading Paradise Lost. He said, um, Milton was of the devil's party, but he didn't know it, meaning that Milton's Satan is so much more energised than his god is. And there's a bit of that with Edgeworth's Belinda. It feels as if, you know, she's never really that interested in Belinda. I don't think she likes her very much. She's really fascinated with Lady Delacour and with Harriet Freak.
1: Now, of course, you'd have the great spin off series where, you know, Mm. like they went on a road trip together. (laughs) Um, Liz, we've kind of guessed we buy with Evelina and Belinda we've probably nominated it our, our homework for people if they want to go away they want to read a great 18th century novel that they might not have heard of is there another one that you would pick to recommend to people?
3: Can I just bring in um, Edgeworth's novel of two years previous to Belinda which is Castle Rackrent and I just want to bring that in as, as a different side of Is it of gothic?
1: I guess because it sounds kind of gothic
3: It's really the first kind of Irish question novel so if we can see continuities between Belinda and Evelina, um, this is something really different. This is kind of the invention of the regional novel, and it's, it's something that we can credit to Edgeworth, that she invents this kind of perspective from the peripheries. We can say that without Edgeworth, there would be no Walter Scott, there would be no Scottish novel, there'd be no Irish novel in the way that, that happened, really the, the kind of thing that she kicked off.
1: And I want to just finish, Sophie, because I know you're going to tell us um, that the most prolific novelist of the Romantic period, <laughs> you know, listeners, you can pause here and for a moment and say, can you guess who, which the most prolific novelist of of that period was? I am betting that, well, I mean, I, actually, this is New Statesman, so there will be one smart ass who definitely knows. But <laughs> I imagine if anybody has a decent guess, they might well go for Walter Scott. But it's not, is it? No, it's Elizabeth
2: Meek, Mrs. Meek exactly who you're saying um yeah i really just think maybe to to finish off there's there's still a lot of recovery work to do fantastic critical work that we haven't really been referencing by name has uncovered all this stuff that we've been talking about but you know there's still it's still the case that most novels of the 18th long 18th century were written by women and going into the romantic period yes you know over um you know, I can't remember exactly how many years, over a couple of decades, this woman wrote 25 novels, and she was capable of banging out as many as five in a year. So she is, she takes that title from Walter Scott, she is the most prolific novelist, and yet practically nobody, you know, when asked would know who she was. Um, fun fact, she's also the half-sister of Frances Burney, which we didn't know until about last year. So
1: That is a good, that is a good trivia <laughs> that you can maybe incorporate into a pub quiz in your own time. Um, but for the moment, thank you very much Liz and Sophie. You've been listening to the New Statesman's History Podcast, Hidden Histories, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by India Burke. Our music is John Baptiste Lully's Gavotte, performed by Thrax, and is licensed under Creative Commons. For more information about the writers and works discussed in this programme, visit newstatesman.com forward slash podcast.